The Beer EDU Podcast, Episode 48, Science Outside the Box with Bonnie Nieves. Welcome to the Beer EDU Podcast, the podcast for educators that love to learn and share ideas with fellow educators over beers, with your hosts, Kyle Anderson and Ben Dixon. Hey, Kyle, what is up, my friend? Oh, Ben, how are we doing today? All right. It is another episode of the Beer ADU Pod. We are on episode 048. That is the episode you are listening to right now. And you, my friend, are? I am Kyle Anderson. You can find me on Twitter at Anderson EdTech, Instagram Anderson EdTech. And you can also read my blog and see my website at AndersonEdTech.net. And you are, sir? Yes, Ben Dixon. You can find me on the Twitterverse at bdixonnv, and also on Instagram at that same one. And since this is the Beer ADU Pod, Kyle, what are you drinking, my friend? Oh, today I recently was at uh, the state's grand celebration for yes. Nevada Day, and I picked up a little bit of beer at the local brewery in Carson City. A place that we recorded at a few months ago yep. when we had Rob Williams on. We were at Shoe Tree Brewing. So down at here, here's what's funny. Just a little sidetrack before I introduce it. We were at the celebration, the parade and whatnot, and I saw the Shoe Tree tent uh, yes. amongst all mm-hmm. the food trucks and the band setting up and all that good stuff. And I thought, all right, great, let's go get ourselves a beer. Well, I get over there and they're selling like vodka tonics gin and tonics and bloody mary and all that stuff and i go hey where's the beer and there's this funky law and i i can't even really explain it i'd have to look this up where a brewery cannot direct sell their beer at an event like that unless it's like a sanctioned like wristband kind of deal or whatever something to do with in nevada where beer has to go through a distributor before it can be sold so basically, Shoe Tree would have had to have gone and bought their own beer from a distributor or, or to sell it at the Nevada Day celebration. Really? Wow. Yeah, I something really weird. That. That the, weird. The the gentleman that um that sold me my beer at the brewery after the fact, because I bought a t-shirt from the tent and then I went right. to the brewery to get the actual beer, he told me to write my congressman. So... <laughs> That is no well now that you say that, I do think like if I go to like uh an event and like uh Great Basin is there, one of those, I do think you have to get a wristband. Yeah, something Yeah, something that. really weird about with distribution huh. or something. But wow. anyway, so I ended up going to the brewery and picking up some cherry godmother. And mm-hmm. what this is, this is a seven percent eight IBU sour Berliner vice that okay. is cherry. It's a little bit tart. It's a little bit sweet. It's a lot of sour and it's just good. So it, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just a good solid drinking beer. Cool. That, oh, that's so funny because actually the beer I was going to choose was a sour, but then I went with something else that I had yesterday and I went to another local uh, brewery, but this one in California. So I went up to Truckee. Did some hiking in the Sierras and then went and had some lunch. And I went to 5050 Brewing, a uh, great spot uh, in Truckee. And I had the Vitamin Dank IPA. So I'm going back to the IPAs. 
Wow, something you've never done before. (laughs) I know, I know. I haven't done an IPA in, you know, so long. But uh, solid 7.5% ABV, 65 IBU. I mean, it's just a straight West Coast style IPA, you know. I'm um, wondering about the vitamin part. I remember we were talking a while back about the oatmeal stout, how they marketed oatmeal beers because it was a healthier beer. So are they trying to market this one as a healthier IPA? I, no, I don't think so. I think it's just a clever a clever name. You know, they're going that whole dank thing and, yeah. and, and real hoppy kind of kind of taste. I mean, 65 IBU, it's it's pretty solid. It's not, you know, it's not overpowering, but it, it was pretty good. But then I also did have... Uh, my wife and I did split a really good sour up there, but I may, might save that one for another episode. Yeah. Now that I need to get back out there again because the food there, I think I've said this on an earlier episode where I, I think they've probably got the best food of any brewery I've ever been mm-hmm. to. And I've been to some pretty good breweries with um, and their food. And then their, their Eclipse series with, oh, uh, yeah. with all the, the different, Eclipse series, the Imperial yes. Stouts that are aged right. in whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is so good. And our local big box had several of them on the shelf the other day. Yep. And some of them were as, uh, as early as 2015 releases. Yeah. So yeah, they've been canning and stuff. So yeah, you can find them in our area, but I don't think, and I don't know, I don't know if they head over the other side into Sacramento or any of those areas, but I definitely know you can find 50, 50 here. And they're supposedly building a tap room yes, here in Reno are. as well. So they that'll are. be, Probably one of our new recording spots uh, when we can record together, at least. For sure. So, But we do have a guest joining us as well, and um, she is coming at us from way across the country, three time zones away. So (laughs) um, we want to welcome Bonnie Nieves to the podcast. Um, Hey, Bonnie. Hello. How are you? We are doing very, very well now that we have cold beverages in our hands. There we go. How about you? I am awesome. Um, today I am drinking my autumn ale from Woodstock Inn Brewery, which is a place local here um, up in the White Mountains. Okay. It's a nice like apple cinnamon flavor uh, lawnmower beer. It's only a 4.3% alcohol and a 25, 25 IBU. So it's nice and easy to drink. And not sweet or sour. It's just, I don't know, just easy to drink and goes down nice and smooth. An autumn ale? Um, so maybe when you're on the lawnmower, taking care of the leaves. Yeah, around here, right now, I'm watching the leaves blowing all over the place. So yeah, we, um, we get on the rider and we bag them up around here because we've got a lot of deciduous trees. And they're probably twice as tall as my house, so a lot of them. Very, very nice. So, well, welcome to the show here. We're really looking forward to chatting with you here today. So um, let's take a moment, though, real quick, though. Um, you said the White Mountains. Now, we have no idea where that's at. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what you do, yep. those things that you're passionate about. What kind of makes you tick? So I am in Massachusetts. I live and teach in central Massachusetts, um, but southern central. So I am just over the Connecticut border. And because our states are so small here, if I drive four hours, I will be smack in the center of New Hampshire, the White Mountains, which has our tallest peak here, um, Mount Washington. 
and um, yeah, they have snow all year round, pretty much all year round. Maybe only in the middle of the summer does their snow melt up at the top there. And, yeah, Mount Washington is legit. Like yeah. I have a fr I have a friend that just hiked the he did the presidential traverse with him and his brother and they flew out there to do that because he's from back there and that's that's those are legit mountains. Yeah, yeah. My uh, I have two sons. They're both older, like in their twenties, and um, one of them is pretty adventurous. So he woke up one morning and said, "Hey, mom, I'm going to go climb Mount Washington today." I said, "Um, I I don't think you're going to do that, but have fun." And six hours, maybe oh, maybe eight hours later, he texted me a picture of himself at the peak of Mount Washington. He really did. He couldn't walk for days after, but yeah, that's the kind of stuff we can do around here. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like where we're at, uh, but I, I think our mountains are a little bit taller where we're at because um, yeah. the Sierras and whatnot. But um, no, that's uh, definitely something that we like to do out here out west as well. And actually, one of my favorite trips was um, last, not last October, the October before, my son, the same crazy one, was out working in Phoenix. And I said, you know what, I'm going to hop on a plane for Columbus Day and meet you up at the Grand Canyon. You want to want to show up there? And we did that. And we drove through Sedona. Sedona is the second most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life. I love it there. Well, what's the first then? The Florida Keys. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I can, and I can just drive there. It takes, you know, uh, well, two days with breaks, but it it's absolutely beautiful there. Well, very nice. So, uh, what do you do in education? I am a high school science teacher, so I teach um, life science almost exclusively. I can teach chemistry and I have, I like to do it once in a while, but mm -hmm. what I love is biology and anatomy and physiology. Those are the, um, yeah, always, always my focus. And whenever I teach those two things, I always bring it back to evolution. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a, there's an understanding that you can't have in science if you don't understand our connectedness to everything on the planet and when you do have it it makes living really extraordinary <laughs> and that's simple as that <laughs> so then so then how long have you been doing have you always taught high school science have you done other things in, in education but that's pretty much that's pretty much what you've been doing yeah i've only been teaching for eight years it oh, okay. has always been life science before that I um, was a teaching assistant and I fell into that because I worked in a lab with my oh. in bio and right. I was just really lonely in a lab. I like talking to people, but lab hours mm -hmm. are excruciating. You know, if, if you're trying to grow bacteria that are going to produce some protein for you in order to make a medication mm -hmm. and the bacteria need to be fed at 1 a.m. then that's where you go at 1 a.m. So it's really, it's a really hard job, harder than um, people realize, I think. And 
lonely talking to bacteria at one <laughs> So I much prefer being in a classroom all day with students that talk that. So teaching is a second career then for you? Yeah, it, it, well, more than even a second career because I worked in an office. I was an office manager while I was going to school for uh, biology. So I'm pretty well-rounded. Well, that's and that's that's something we don't talk about a lot on the show is like these these trajectories that get us to to where we are currently. So you're you're working in a lab, which working crazy hours and everything like that. And then did you just like were like, I think I'm going to go do education. Did you have like like did you start volunteering at your kid's school? Like how'd that happen? So it's funny. I actually wrote a blog about it not too long ago as I was reflecting back and. Um, when I, when I was finishing up college, my career counselor said, you know, you really should be a teacher. Every job you've ever had when I listed out my job descriptions was as a trainer or a preceptor, or, um, like I used to go out and do trainings for the companies. And she said, you'd make an awesome teacher. I said, yeah, but I really don't want to be that person that teaches just so they can have the summers off and teachers don't get a lot of respect. So I want something where I'll get more respect. So I'm going to stick with science. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, nah, the, mm-hmm. you know, the lab job just wasn't for me. So mm-hmm. I got a job just working at a local store and a girl that I worked with there said, you know what, you want to just try being a substitute teacher. Oh, Really, another person telling me to be a teacher. I suppose I'll go try it. And it was the craziest thing. I got a job as a two-week sub at my son's high school. And it was to fill in for a co-teacher. So I was in the room with another teacher. And that woman, after two weeks, went to the superintendent and said, this girl is so awesome. We can't let her go. We need to create a position for her at this school. You'll regret it if you don't. And I didn't know she did that until the superintendent called me in and told me the story and offered me a job. So I took it. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Usually, usually people don't, usually people don't go in from the sub route, at least in my experience, because subbing, subbing is hard. Subbing is hard. I'm just going to worry about that. Yeah, and I, this was different because I was subbing for a co-teacher. So mm-hmm. there was another person in the room who was helping me out as I go. Because I had zero education classes at that time. I hadn't taken anything. It was purely science. Right. So, um, yeah, she said it's just the way, like, when I talk to kids, I get down on my knee instead of talk down to them. Mm-hmm. Pointed out all the things that she thought I did well. So I just made sure I did more of those things. <laughs> and um, the position they created for me was for an unlicensed um, paraprofessional. Right. And I got my education credits while I worked there. And oh, okay. They reimbursed me for that. And okay. So, so it was like almost like a, so we have it out here, like in my district, we call it alternative route to licensure. So we have people who come in from a second career and they, they have to take classes while they're working. So it was similar to that, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I, took, I don't know how many years I've worked there. It was quite a few, maybe four 
mm -hmm. while I was getting my credits after work. And um, I, I feel like that was the best possible route that any teacher could have. And if I had any control over how teachers are licensed, I would make it mandatory that every teacher has to do at least a year in a special ed role because you learn mm. so much about the process that um, that you have to go through to become a like a special needs student it has to be mm -hmm. targeted and they have to go through this process of accepting or denying special ed education just there's so so much involved in it and the the modifications and accommodations that teachers tend to ignore a lot of times or just mm. they say things like well i'm not going to modify the content i'll just modify the grade well <laughs> that's not the right, right way to do things but when and they have that all teachers have the best intentions but if they right. don't really understand the process behind all of that that went into it they they don't understand how they're actually undermining the whole entire process by doing that so and just having empathy for all different types of parents and students it was great yeah there's definitely some teachers out there that with the best intentions they they'll say well i just the, this, this student doesn't understand the material. They're not going to understand the material, which that just burns me right there when they say something like that. But then they will say something along the lines of, I'll just make sure that they pass. Well, yeah. that's not doing anybody any favors right there. So, And that's how we end up where you end up having students in ninth, 10th grade that are reading at a second grade level because the whole time along, they've just been passed along because, well, they're not going to understand it or that it's too hard for them or whatever. Let's just pass them along, give them the grade so we don't hold them back. And then there's that stigma of them being the older second grader or whatever. So and that ends up becoming the problems that I end up encountering as a high school teacher where I'm working with students with such low reading skills or such low math skills as a result of that. Yeah, and there's a lot of the, oh, but he's so cute. She's such a good kid. And then the opposite end of the spectrum, well, it's no wonder that kid doesn't do well look at her behavior you know there's a root cause for everything and that's what we should always be trying to get to you know and to honor the life that students have outside of school it's um it, it's not easy i i i admit that when i was told by my career counselor that i should go into teaching i had no idea what she was actually recommending to me and i i can't believe the amount the different amount of respect i have for all teachers now that i'm actually in education and seeing all the work that people do to help kids be successful yeah it is it is we work in a very interesting profession i i, I talk with people all the time about this it's like it's the one job that every single person in the united states has an experience in yeah. But they have a but they have a they have a very small window of what they've seen. And then when once you're in it and then even even beyond your first year to second year, fifth year teaching in a classroom, then you start to see all kinds of other things going on. I mean, that's, yeah. It's a different perspective. The first few years of teaching is just like a fog, I think. 
you know, you're just trying to figure out routines and then the routine changes and someone will throw something else at you Mm -hmm. and it takes a long time to settle in and have enough confidence to really take control of your teaching career. And it's even more difficult when you are, you know, out somewhere and people ask what you do for a living and you're like, <laughs> and like oh, a teacher, you love having the summers off, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's what I have. I don't do anything over the summer. <laughs> well, no teachers ever do. <laughs> that's true. Um, what... Um... So as you were going through this program, did did your like as you're as you're moving into education, you're taking these classes. Did your does your district have like a support system for you? Is there like a mentors, things like that? Um, the the school that I attended, not the school where I work, but okay. I went to um, Worcester State University. Okay, they have a really good education department there, and they even the head of the education department even came out to observe me teaching mm. at school. And yeah, she was a really close mentor. I met with her at least once a week, as I remember. It was a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, st- I still remember. It's like, it's the same thing students say about teachers. Like, I still remember the feeling I had when I sat with her in her office. Mm-hmm. And I knew she really cared about me being successful. So... That's that's a sign of a really good mentor right there. For sure. Yeah. So now you talked about your, your teaching biology. Now, is there, an, uh, well, it's also anatomy, I think you said yeah. as well. Um, is that tied to like a, a, like a health sciences program in your school? Or is it just a standalone class just to kind of give students a little bit of exposure to health sciences potentially? So at... Here in Massachusetts, we have a required health and wellness curriculum, and we have a required science curriculum. And the our standardized test, our high stakes test here in Massachusetts, the MCAS, is given for science in grades five, eight, and then again in high school. The school gets to determine which year the high school test is given. And my school gives it to the freshmen after they have taken biology. So we don't have a, a health science curriculum that we follow because we are really vested in getting these kids to pass the biology MCAS test that they take as freshmen. So it's a really important year. This biology class is really important them and because they get it done at my school as freshmen they have more opportunities to take elective classes so my anatomy class is an elective class that uh, most kids that are hoping to get into some health career or um, are even interested in pursuing anything like that usually come through my class so I see almost every one of the kids at some point before they graduate in that class Okay, because I know that there's a with with CTE education becoming more popular in schools across the country. I know that there's different schools that have like a health science curriculum that is followed, where from freshman year on, students start taking different courses that can eventually 
get them even certifications. I know like the school that I'm at currently, we have a program where students can take classes throughout all four years of high school and then they can actually graduate with the certification to be a paramedic uh, before going on to college. So um, I've heard of students that have gone through the program at my school that they're going off to whatever university they, they choose and then they have a part-time job as a paramedic while going to school. So I was just kind of curious as to if your school was doing that too. No, we're in an interesting predicament because we have a um, vocational school in the next town over that um, has a couple of biomedical career pathways. So we, we lose a lot of kids with that special interest to that school. So um, there's not really a high demand for a pathway right now. And we're a small school. We're, my school is a seven through 12, and we have under a thousand students there. Okay, so that's, um, well, I mean, that when you have that competition, that, you know, definitely can take away that little bit of motivation for a school to do some different things uh, like that. But at the same time, though, it could also be a motivator for a school to implement a program like that to try to maybe attract other students in. So I'm not sure how it works in Massachusetts with uh, school of choice or anything, but I know here in Nevada and a lot of the Western states, there's laws in place that say that if a student wants to go to another school, they can they can request to do so and get, we call it a zone variance out here. So uh, I'm not sure if that's something that you have there at all. Yeah, we do. We actually have uh, quite a few kids that opt into our school from neighboring towns. But yeah, even with our, um, I did an interest survey a couple of years ago and there just wasn't enough interest in the biomedical field to warrant us putting together a whole pathway to do that. So um, as interested as kids are when they get to high school, it seems like at, like at the beginning of the pathway, which would start at seven or eight, because that's where we are in a seven through 12 school, the interest doesn't develop until later when they're maybe sophomores or um, juniors. And at that point it would be too late to start them on a pathway. And I'm the only teacher that teaches those sorts of elections. So. Right. Well, that's yeah. the challenge part, too. Yeah, I think it's with any of those CTE or any of that. It, it is the challenging part is you got to catch you got to catch them early. But mm -hmm. then at the same time, is that when you're in seventh grade? I mean, I, I'm not sure if I knew what I was going to do when I was. In, in fact, I 100 percent know that yeah. I would, that I didn't know anything. I was going to be a professional skateboarder. That didn't quite work out. Oh, well, but imagine if it had. Yeah, well, it's all good now. I have I have a great job, so yeah. I I get up a lot easier in the morning than being a fifty year old professional skateboarder. I don't that I don't want to do that. But anyways, um, so so with that with that career path, do, what do you see like as the like for your future? Like, are you are you looking to grow that your program? Are you are you still thinking about that? Or are you you know just focusing on being in the classroom right now? Um, I would love to grow that pathway, but I don't see our particular school moving in that direction. So, um, like I said, I did try 
once and that doesn't mm-hmm. mean I won't try again, mm-hmm. but um, I just don't see that being successful anytime soon. My, my latest thing, someone actually asked me if I could have a grant for any amount of money to do anything I wanted in education, what would it be? And I said, I'd like to flip the whole script on education. And instead of me fighting to find places that will accept us to go on these field trips, like to the medical examiner Mm -hmm. or to biotech companies, why, why can't we flip it and make the school the place that people want to come see? So those biotech companies would hear about an awesome classroom and then want to go in and observe how science is being taught. You know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why are we always trying to definitely want to get the kids out into the community and see what's going on in the real world? But meantime, the real world doesn't really know what's going on in our classrooms, Mm -hmm. right? Like when I take kids on trips and the people there say, oh my goodness, you do that in freshman biology? Mm -hmm. I didn't do that until I got to college. So yeah, because everything's different now. In most places, every kid has a device and they Mm -hmm. have access to all sorts of things. School has changed so much. And I think the community would better support us if they knew how hard students and educators work. Well, I think that that's that idea of, of that partnering with with different industries and things like that to create that 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 pipeline almost where I think some schools do a really good job with it. I mean, that's goes back to when we were talking about CTE, like they they have that connection with their industry or, or whatever they're doing. But it would be nice to see that within a general education school such as yours, like a high school where you have different partners in it you know we we call them here like a partner in education so there's an in there's a particular business that might partner with a school or a couple businesses but i think what you're describing is like across the board industries coming in and looking at high schools and what kids are doing as opposed to just going to colleges because they probably do a good job in college looking at that yeah yeah and just you know find maybe find better ways of finding a need that they can fill inside a classroom Instead of teachers having to do the, you know, the donors choose and go fund me. And there's always corporations that are happy to donate money to teachers' classrooms. But if there was a, a tighter community and more of a reach in from industry than a reach out from education, I think that would make a big difference. And it would make a big difference, I think, in how, at least the teachers that I know, are able to teach their students because they have, you know, a, like a renewed sense of importance, I guess, maybe like an appreciation for what they're actually doing. And what makes it so much easier now making these connections is because a lot of that technology piece where, you know, when we were in school, there, your only choice to get connected to the community was really that field trip where the teacher in the school had to arrange for busing and had to arrange with the partner, whatever it was going to be and get kids out. But nowadays with things like Google Hangouts and Skype, you can connect with not just people in your community, but people around the world where if you are teaching world history, you can connect with 
the curator of the Louvre in Paris or something like that to show off different artifacts that are in that museum there. I mean, and you can just sit right in the classroom. You don't have to worry about the thousands of dollars per kid it would cost to get them into to go to Paris. So, I mean, it's not just the community. I mean, it's really, it's worldwide. Yeah. And that's actually, that's something that got me started thinking about this was the, there's this really cool organization, Skype a Scientist, that has a spreadsheet of scientists that are willing to, when asked, just Skype into a classroom and talk about whatever topic they have listed. So you can actually go into this Google spreadsheet and search for, like I went in and searched for a botanist and found a botanist and asked her if she'd Skype with my students and she did. Cool. And yeah, it was super awesome. But I wish there was a reverse way of doing it where we could say, here's a, a classroom in Massachusetts that's really passionate about this and someone on the other end is looking for us instead of us always looking for them. Yeah, it's almost like we uh, you almost need like a match, some sort of match system to match yeah. up schools with with industry <laughs> people. Because I think about that, like it we talk about like there's all this push with crowdsourcing and things like that. It would make sense. Like you have a whole group of kids that are super passionate about something that that's that's an untapped that's an untapped uh, resource. Yeah, that's my future Google Innovator project right yeah. there. The match.com for teachers and industry. Yeah, yeah, you can like swipe left, <laughs> find a good match for yourself. But yeah, that's that's the big idea that's brewing over here in the back of my mind. Now you mentioned that there's a lot of emphasis on this science test for freshmen um, in your school, and it sounds like you're trying to make these community connections in order to make the science more relevant and how it's not just a test and the teachers are teaching to the test. What other kind of stuff are you doing to try to make the science more relevant and not make it, make the test so important in the student's eyes, but at the same time, emphasizing the importance of the test. So, um, I've, I feel as though I've been doing things so differently for so long that I don't realize now how different, it is like a typical unit of study in my biology class starts out with kids looking at some something that I think is interesting mm -hmm. and so like this the most current unit I did was a 40 second time lapse of trees changing color and I didn't allow students to talk in any form but questions for an entire class period about the video. And we investigated nearly every one of those questions, like either by doing a lab or going on a nature walk or doing some research, Skyping with a botanist to ask her specific questions about trees. And from doing that without giving any ordinary assignments or scheduling any homework quizzes or tests, we hit uh, half of the science standards in the state without even thinking about it. And with me not going in there mm -hmm. with a, like a regular lesson plan that says on week one, we cover photosynthesis. Week two, we cover ecology. 
but because the students wrote their own questions and decided what they wanted to investigate, we still ended up hitting all of those things. And now the, if you ask any one of my students a question, they will passionately answer it because they found their own information. And actually they did because I put out on Twitter one day a warm up that I was gonna give my kids, which was trees are green all year, but dot, 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 because dot, 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 and so. So I sent that just out into the Twitterverse and my friend from Connecticut who teaches third grade students gave that warm up to her students and sent, took pictures of her students' responses on paper and they were really incredibly cute and inaccurate. And my students read those kids' work and sent Flipgrid videos to her students' classroom correcting their thinking. Oh. And then those kids sent Flipgrid videos back. Wow. Yeah. So That's... super cool. So do you do a lot of that using social media? It sounds like you, you, you tap into that. Do you do a lot of connecting with other schools with your classes? I don't so much connect my students with other schools. Right. Um, because we're just now becoming one-to-one. -one, so okay. I can reliably have devices. And because students' devices, I mean, every kid has a cell phone in high school, mm -hmm. almost every student. But they're so different. It would be a, mm. a nightmare for me to try to troubleshoot all of those different kinds of phones in one room and make sure everyone has a comparable experience. So right. I do do it whenever I can get our, um, our Chromebooks, which mm. I think is really good. We just got an influx of, I don't know how many hundreds of Chromebooks, but um, still, I can't guarantee I'm going to have one every day right. to follow up with this stuff. So, so then that that's, and I, you speak to like a huge part of it, the, 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 la, you know, making sure we have technology to use technology, but um, so then not only are you, you're doing this in teaching, you're connecting kids, sounds like you're doing some other stuff outside of the classroom for your own personal stuff, blogging. And are, are you working with like, are you, are you doing the Google education badge and those kind of things? Kyle knows more about them than I do. Yeah. So I have my Google uh, one and two certification okay. and I was just recently declined from the certified innovator but, um, in New York, the 2019 cohort. So I'll wait and see if there's another East coast cohort coming up soon because I can't justify, you know, flying anywhere. Some people go all the way to Sweden for that. I, I, um, I wouldn't do that, but if there was another East coast one, I would definitely try, but even um, so yesterday I spent my whole day up in Boston, which is only just over an hour from me working cool. with a group of scientists to take their research and take their original primary documents and convert them into a form that's easy for high school students to read. So it was just super cool. I'm sitting in, uh, um, it was actually a Warner Brothers office. They loaned us the office for the day, working with Harvard PhDs on this cutting edge research. 
that is just newly published, bringing that to the classroom. Um, yeah, wow. so it's like an average weekend for me <laughs> like that. Yeah, super cool. Always trying to find um, new science connections, especially. So once you have those that research from these Harvard PhDs, which to me, that's mind blowing as it is, because I mean, that's like the creme de la creme of, you know, education and universities in the world. So, and you have that right in your backyard. Now, what are you planning to do with this research now that you have access to it and taken it back to the classroom? So it's not, um, I didn't organize it. I was invited to it. It's a, um, an organization called, Bite Size, B-I-T-E-S-C-I-S. And they've been doing this for a few years. They get um, researchers and science teachers together a couple times a, a year. And they have a pretty good uh, library of stuff put together on their website right now. And it's all exactly that. It's research, cutting edge research, vetted by scientists and science teachers written in a way that high school students can understand and applies directly to our Massachusetts standards that make it more authentic and you know just more more cool the the scientists that wrote it that wrote the research has their bio in there they write everything in first person and you know this is what I did this is why I did it why I was interested and the kids just eat it up because they, like, like you said, this is creme de la creme, the Harvard graduates, right, right up the street. And they went to school, sometimes right across the country and sometimes right in our back, at our back door too. You, you know, you just never know who you're sitting next to when you're at Panera, up, you know, in your own neighborhood. They're super approachable people. Well, it sounds like then rather than textbooks are always written by, you know, PhDs and people that have the experience in that. But to me, this is something that the students, rather than just reading this anonymous textbook to get the information that they need, now they're getting something that they can feel more connected to because they know, wow, this is somebody that right down the street and it could have been somebody potentially that graduated from that same high school that was writing that material and now, and it's making it more personable with the material by writing in that first person. And I just, I feel like the kids probably have much better connection to that kind of research instead of just getting out of a standard textbook then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, in, in all of my eight whole years of teaching, I have never used a textbook because um, it just, it is that it's stale and especially with science, it changes from day to day. And there's, there are things that are relevant to students. It's scary for teachers to think about it because it's unexpected, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the girl that I was working with yesterday just did some research on vaccines and how um, vaccines are given to um, women during their pregnancy, but not all of the vaccine goes into 
the baby. Mm. So there must be some sort of blockage, like something in the umbilical cord that stops that from crossing over. Mm. And she discovered what it is. Wow. So she's, her research has the potential to change how vaccines are delivered across the world and improve infant mortality rates. This one person that just works down the street. Yeah. So well, that's well, and that goes into that whole thing you, you talked about when we first started talking is that, that interconnectedness, I mean, not just organisms and things like that, just human beings, like the interconnectedness within our own communities of, of, of the work that someone's doing literally, <laughs> like you said, in your backyard. Yeah. Has this, yeah that's how wow. to change the world. Yeah. And it, it, you would see, she, she is an amazing human. She rode in on her bike. You know? <laughs> just, she didn't have an entourage. She right. didn't have a limo. Yeah. Just sat there eating bagels and talking about changing the world. <laughs> wow. That, yeah, that is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bonnie, we can't thank you enough for joining us here today and sharing your passion for science and all the cool things that you're doing with your students in your school. So uh, thank you again for yes. taking some time out to join us here today. Yeah, thank you. you. Actually, you picked a really exciting week for me. I've been doing a lot of cool stuff this week, so yeah. plenty to talk about. Oh, no, it's that, awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that stuff. That's uh. I, that, that whole thing again, that, that working with Harvard that you were doing that, that to me is, that was, that's amazing right there. That I'm, I'm really happy you shared that with us. Yeah. Yeah. The opportunities exist and these people are just willing to share. It's just, you have to find them and hopefully someday I'll be able to flip that where <laughs> it's a the exciting place to be. And those people want to come in and find us. Yeah, we're, I'm looking forward to seeing that because I do think I think you're onto something there with that with that that matchmaker system. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just have to make it sound a little more appealing. Yes. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Well, Sarah well, Thomas with EduMatch, uh, she yeah. answered a lot of questions in the beginning yep. that EduMatch was not a dating service for teachers. So and now <laughs> now that's a worldwide phenomenon. So that's true. And funny thing, I'm publishing a book with them coming up in the summer. So. Oh, what's right the book going to be about? Um, the book is going to be about um, how I didn't want to be a teacher because teachers had a bad rap and how I, uh, my process of becoming a teacher and valuing education and personal contact over grades and the, the end of worksheets forever, <laughs> things like that. Cool. Very nice. Well, we All look right. forward to seeing that come out. Then. Yes. You said next summer? Yeah, hopefully for um, summer 2020, just in time for some good book studies. Cool. Very nice. Awesome. So, so well, thank you so much for being on. Um, definitely, um, we want uh, all our listeners to keep the conversation going, share your, your thoughts on today's topics. Um, you know, email us at the beer edu podcast at gmail.com. You know, you can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, use that hashtag at BeerEDUPod. Um, we're on Facebook. Um, and then make sure you follow Bonnie. So she's at Biology Goddess on Twitter. And then you can also send us a voice message using the Anchor app and leave us a review in iTunes. And uh, other people can find the podcast as a result. So 
And if you'd like to be a guest on the show along with us, visit our website, www.beeredupodcast.com. Click on the contact and subscription info link and complete our guest form and we'll be in contact to have you come on the show. Yeah, we would love to have you on the show. And Bonnie, hey, stick around. This is the part of the show where we're going to do a little bit of um, a little more education. We learned about stuff you're doing, but now we're going to learn about beer. Yeah, we have an interesting one this week. And this one was kind of because ahead of time, (laughs) I I saw that Bonnie was from Massachusetts. And uh, I've only been to Massachusetts once. A long time ago, I went to Boston and... I did the whole Boston thing where, you know, I ate a bunch of seafood and I had some uh, good Boston beer. And, you know, I went to a Celtics and Pistons game while I was there. And uh, then w- one of the things I did was uh, I went to a place called the Union Oyster House. And if I remember correctly, it's been, it's the longest still operating restaurant in the United States. And it's been open nonstop since 1825. Whoa. Yeah. So long time. And the table that I had... When I was there, there was two tables nearby that were roped off, and I thought maybe it was because, oh, this is just how they're reserving tables for whatever. And um, our server ended up telling us that one of the tables was where Daniel Webster used to eat, who was a senator from Massachusetts back in the Mm -hmm. mid-1800s, which I thought that was Mm -hmm. amazing. Well, then the other table was where John F. Kennedy used to sit all the time. So those are tables that they actually don't use anymore. They're kind of like museum pieces now. Cool. So I, I remember that being really cool. But so this style of beer came out of that whole thought about my trip to Massachusetts, you know, 13 years ago or whatever it was now at this right. point. So, and that is an oyster stout. Yeah. I'd never heard of this. It's something I've heard of. I definitely have never had one. So I have no idea what these taste like. I am going strictly off of my research here <laughs> as to what this is, but I just thought it was appropriate being oysters are such a big part of, Boston right. and the whole Massachusetts, um, you know, experience in my opinion. So, um, it's not a new concept. It's something that's been around for at least a hundred years, early 1900s. And just like a lot of our favorite beers and styles, this started in Britain. Okay. And you know, stouts were real common in Britain mm-hmm. and you go to the pub and you order your stout and then oysters was something that you got to eat along with your delicious stout that you got. So, okay. So what they ended up doing later on, though, they started to brew the beer with the oyster shells. And the reason why they were doing that was the oyster shells would pick up the particles that were free-floating in the brew, and they would okay. allow it to sink to the bottom so they could basically clarify the beer. Where, oh. Yeah, so it was just something wow. really interesting I found out about that. I mean, now today, you don't necessarily have that being the case today because there's so many different filtration techniques that brewers right. can use now with our modern technology. But there are some brewers that are making stouts that are either using the oyster shells still or they're throwing in entire oysters into the boil. And the whole idea behind it is to bring out those briny flavors, that sea, that sea salt, to right. impart that flavor into the beer. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, what does that taste like? Yeah, and and like I said, I've never had one, so I'm not sure. But now the the salty, the briny part makes a lot of sense because if you've had a Goza ale, a sour German-style beer, that's that's got salt in it. 
So right. and now the the original Goza style is because they were using brackish water for right. their boil process, but now there's a lot of brewers that they're just adding salt to the to the boil. Right. So to me, this is kind of this is kind of similar to that where instead of adding salt, the the oysters bring out that like oceany and salty flavor a little bit. But, you know, I mean, I love oysters myself, but there's right. also a lot of people that probably would think that that's probably not going to be the best of flavor <laughs> to put in a beer. And I, I could see this actually working out really well, too, if you've got like a smoked stout where. Yeah. Where because I like smoked oysters as well. Right. And I could see it balancing out the chocolate and the coffee flavors real well, having that smokiness and that brininess in it as well. But again, it's not something I've never seen I, I, to buy to buy one of these. And yeah, it's a style that I mean, you basically got to be close to the the yeah. sea, really, where yeah. you're going to have access to fresh oysters because a brewer is not going to want to spend a bunch no. of extra money to have oysters shipped in just to make this beer, yeah. uh, at least in my opinion. So well, you might think so, but I just found one made by my good buddies over at New Belgium, which is in Colorado. Yes. Oh, interesting. Theirs is retired, but they did have a um, oyster stout called the Trip 16. Wow. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. The only one that I found that would be from a brewer that I've heard of is 21st Amendment out of San Francisco. They had one. That's that's where I was going. I was like, okay, who in San Francisco might do one? Twenty first might do one. Uh, I could see I, I, Rogue or um, Ninkasi up in Oregon. Yeah, maybe doing them. I'm surprised then... one of the Oregon's, one of the Oregon brewers. Maybe there's, and we'll have to look because I'm wondering, like up up that way, a smaller a smaller brew because it does seem like a very specialized. Yeah, um, I don't think this is one that you're gonna. Brew. You're not going to try to turn into the next year Nevada Pale Ale no. or the Boston Lager or anything like that. I don't think you have enough oysters. No. I mean, that's my thing is it's going to be a super small batch, but I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to. All right. Well, now somebody is going to have to hit us up on Twitter or Instagram or something and tell us a little more about this. Yeah. And then, well, and frankly, I, I wonder if the Boston Beer Company, I make Sam Adams, has made one of these before as well. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious as to that. The closest thing that I've ever had to an oyster stout was I had a an IPA made. I, I believe it was made by Pizza Port. Um, oh, okay, yeah. That it was a squid ink IPA. Yeah. And what it was, it it, it had like this briny and kind of bitter from the squid right. ink, and uh, and it was it was really dark black this beer, and it wasn't because of the malt, it was because of the squid ink itself. But oh. I would say that's probably the closest I've had to an oyster stout. Yeah, that, and I, yeah, that's yeah. We had Pizza Port featured uh, a couple episodes ago, yes. so you know we'll have to. I'll have to look for that one. Yes, indeed. So Raider trying to find a West Coast oyster stout, <laughs> and everything seems to be East Coast except yeah. for one from Norway. Oh, oh, interesting. Well, so that is well. If we go to Norway, I'm gonna look for it. <laughs> there we go. So. Yeah, well, awesome. and I guess we'll have some lutefisk while we're there too. There we are. No, <laughs> that there's. I am not a picky eater, and I will try just about anything once. But if you're gonna <laughs> soak a chunk of fish in lye, I am not eating that. No, I'll pass. So, I'm good. So, but yeah, so it's wow. something that you know, like I said, I've never had one of these, but um, I'm I'm kind of intrigued to find one and try it now, just because it's so 
just outside the box, kind of like a lot of the stuff that Bonnie you're doing in your classroom. So much of there what we you're are. doing is outside the box as well. Yeah. Wow. So there we go. That is the oyster stout. Indeed. So, and uh, we'll try. I don't. I can't imagine us finding a more interesting one in the near future for, say, episode forty-nine that's coming up next yeah. or anything. But we're gonna try our darndest to find something. Um, but if again, if you're listening and there's a topic that you want to hear us uh, research and uh, talk a little bit more about, and you come up with something funky, let us know and uh, we'll look into it. Yeah, for sure. Hit us up. And Bonnie, thanks again for being on the show. We really appreciate having you on. Yeah, you're welcome. And now I'm going to go out and see if I can find an oyster stout. There we go. Very You'll have nice. to hit us up. Yeah, hit us up on Twitter and let us know what you find. All right, I will. Awesome. Well, uh, listeners, as always, thank you for joining us. And until next time, may the malts and the hops be with you. Right on. Right on.